If you're new this morning, let me just introduce myself. I'm Jeff, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I would love to get to meet you this morning. So if this is your first time and you haven't met me yet, please uh, approach me afterwards. I'd love to connect with you. Church, let's start um, our time in the Word with prayer and asking for God's help to hear Him this morning. Father, thank you for the infinite, marvelous grace that we just sang about that is ours in Jesus. Lord, would you fill us with your spirit this morning that we could hear your voice through your word? We want to be with you as we're with each other. We want to worship you and continue to seek you as we go to your word. Father, we pray this morning for families who are sick this morning, who are struggling with all kinds of different bugs right now. I know some of them are watching online. Father, I pray and we pray together that you would bring healing to each one who needs to be healed right now. And Father, we pray for our friends that we know are working this morning for our common good out in the world. Lord, they aren't able to be with us. We pray that you would meet them in this moment as they do their calling and vocation. Would you be with them in a special way this morning as well? And Father, for any other lingering request in need, we just lift them to you in this moment. Thank you that you know what we need and you love to provide. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, church, we've come to the end of Advent, which was one of my favorite seasons of the whole year, and now we're well into Christmas and post-Christmas, right? This post-Christmas season. In Advent, that's a season of anticipation. We anticipated Christ, the coming of our extravagant King and the coming of His extravagant kingdom. But not just our King, right? He's the world's rightful and true Lord. Advent was a time where we would look back at his arrival, his incarnation, and we'd look forward to his promised and sure return someday. It's like we read at the end of Revelation, at the end of this year, in Revelation 22:20, Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And our response as his followers is amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In the Christmas season then, we celebrate Christ's arrival that we anticipate, anticipated so much throughout Advent. The king has come. The king is here. He has humbled himself, and he's taken on human flesh. He is present, and he is powerful. He is more than sufficient for our every need. He is more than enough for all of the ups and all of the downs that we face in our lives. And he reigns right now. Sure, not everyone recognizes his reign or acknowledges it, but Jesus' reign is solid and immovable. It doesn't need the acknowledgement of any human beings to be real and powerful. In this new year, I want to spend some time thinking about and contemplating that reign, his reign together, and what might the implications of his reign be for our everyday lives. Christ has come, now what? How can we continue to anticipate Christ the way we did throughout Advent and in Christmas in this new year of life that's before us? 
And how can we draw on the riches of Christ, the infinite marvelous grace, in new ways and live in the freedom that he brings? For many people, and maybe you're one of those people, the new year provides an opportunity to take stock of this past year and to think about the year that's ahead of us. What has it been like this year? And what could the new year be like? How could things be different and better in some way? The goals people set and the New Year's resolutions that they make are commitments of action. They're commitments that things will be different towards some vision of what a flourishing human life could be like. Embedded in every single New Year's resolution is a desire for things to be different. A desire for things to be as they ought to be because things are not as they ought to be. The, re- the resolutions that people make reveal, at least in part, what people believe to be the good life, the life that our hearts long for. They, at least in part, answer the question of what's really important and what is our life to be about this year. So statistically, I looked this up, the most common New Year's resolutions, you could probably guess them, are related to physical fitness, bodily health, and money. For example, I will exercise more this year. Or I will eat healthier and I will lose weight this year. Or I will save more money this year. Or I will stop this bad habit that I've been meaning to stop for a while this year. All of those things are worthwhile to focus some time or energy on, but we know that as followers of Jesus, that by themselves those things will not bring the life that we all want so much. When you reach your fitness, health, and financial goals, then what? Then what is life about after that? So as we open up the word this morning, I want us to think about how we come up with these New Year's resolutions and goals and life ambitions. Where does the value that we place upon those things come from? Why do we pursue them? And you might answer very simply, well, it's obvious why I pursue them because that's what I want. But then I would ask the question, why do you want that thing? Why do you want to save more money this year? At least part of the reason why we want the things that we want is that we've been taught to want them in some way. We've followed someone or multiple someone's examples and their teaching, and we've believed that what they taught us was true, that this thing, whatever that thing is, will bring fulfillment will bring happiness, and will lead us to the good life that we long for. We all follow someone. Following someone is inevitable for us as humans because we were made to imitate. That is just in us, and it's an important part of who we are. We do that imitation seemingly automatically. We pick it up like we pick up lint or fuzz on our shirt. We pick up opinions and biases and tastes and trends without even trying. All of a sudden, we just have this new desire, this new priority, unexamined probably, but real and tangible that stirs us and that we aim our life towards, just like we pick up lint on ourselves. For disciples of Jesus, our aim is to learn from him, right? Our aim is to become like him in all areas of our life. He is the one that we seek to imitate. He is the one we seek to learn from and believe and follow. Because when we look at Jesus, we see true and full human life on display. 
without any of the brokenness or distortions of sin that we experience every day in ourselves and in other people, in our relationships. What God made human beings to be, we see in Jesus in fullness. He displays it. And what Jesus was made for and what we see in him is what we were also made for. What we see in him and that good life is for us too. What we see in Jesus is the good life that our souls long for, but we can easily mistake finding it somewhere else outside of him. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 to see what Jesus taught about the desires and ambitions that are reflected in our New Year's resolution making and how these desires for well-being and health are fulfilled in Christ and his kingdom. This passage we're about to read is right in the middle of the longest sermon that we have from Jesus recorded in our, in our Bibles, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount today. We're going to read Matthew chapter 6, 25 to 34. Matthew 6, 25 to 34. This is Jesus speaking. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This teaching from Jesus which I think is amazing to think that if he were to get up and preach, this is what he would preach. This is a sermon he actually gave to his followers. It was given roughly 2,000 years ago, right? But it is needed today more than ever. Worry and a state of anxiousness have become such a normal part of our human experience and our narrative of life that it can seem just like the normal way of being. Worry has increasingly become the default setting the normal way of living. A hurried and preoccupied life can seem like our only option, and a life of peace and restful contentment has become the odd exception. Sometimes we realize how normal the state of worry and anxiousness is when we step into a moment of contentment and it feels like, whoa, where has that been? Where we have this deep peace. As missionaries to college students for 15 years before coming here, 
Jess and I saw more and more that it was normal for students to be paralyzed with this. To be so consumed by worry and anxiousness that they weren't able to accomplish and do the things that they really wanted to do. We got to see very uniquely over and over again a new set of 18-year-olds come in every year. And we could see these changes happening over time. There are many reasons for this in our world and in our lives, and they're really going to be different for each one of us. But for many people, technology and a constant state of connectedness to the internet and all that goes with being constantly connected that way, while not the root cause of that, certainly contribute to it in significant ways. But this morning, I don't really want to dwell on the particular reasons that things might be the way they are right now, but I do want to point out that human beings struggling with anxiety, anxiousness, worry, is nothing new. It's not new. We can see from Jesus' teaching very clearly that people in his day also dealt with these feelings and this state. At the same time, Jesus very clearly in this passage and in other places teaches us that that sort of frazzled life is incompatible with life in his kingdom. It is not what he wants and desires for his apprentices. Far from being inevitable, worry and anxiousness is something that Christ can truly and really set us free from. The life that he describes in this teaching is one of joyful dependence upon God that can really be ours today because Jesus really reigns today. He's really here right now. If you look at the passage in your Bible, you see that it starts with the word therefore. And it starts with that because we're picking up in the middle of this sermon that Jesus has been giving. It connects what we just read today with what came before it, which was a whole series of teachings on the importance of truly being rather than merely appearing. Truly being rather than merely appearing to be. Truly connecting with the living God rather than appearing to connect with God to fulfill some other sort of desire or ambition. Jesus gives examples like practicing righteousness, like giving or praying or fasting, not for the purpose of connecting with God, but for the purpose of being seen by other people, appearing to be devout and religious, but actually seeking human praise and accolades and the advantage in life that that would bring to them. Jesus knew that people had and would find ways of taking spiritual practices and twisting them and making them about something totally different, different than God. His teachings always go way beyond what we just see with our eyes to the deep places in the human heart, to our motives and our desires and our very being. Therefore, in this passage, also draws on Jesus' teaching on money. If you just skim in your Bible there, you'll see that right before this passage, Jesus is talking about money. He says, Will we live for treasures on earth that appear valuable and desirable, but in the end are not what they appear to be? Or will we live for treasures in heaven, treasures that have eternal value and true weightiness, that don't rust or wear out? This is, again, a contrast and an emphasis on the way things can appear versus the way things truly are. Jesus tells his disciples very bluntly, you cannot serve God and money. One or the other will be your master, but both can't be. 
as he continues his sermon then, where we picked up today, he's doing so assuming that his disciples, his students, when hearing of that choice, God or money, something that appears to, not, appears to have worth but really doesn't, and something of, of infinite worth, that his disciples will choose what is of infinite worth in God. He assumes that their answer to that question, will it be God or money, their answer will be God. So what we just read continues on that theme of being and what is truly important and what is truly worthwhile. It addresses what human beings seek and pursue and then become anxious about, our life and our body. How long will we live? Whether we have enough food or enough drink and sustenance to enjoy life and what we put on our bodies, our clothing. One theologian commented that eating and drinking and wearing encompass a trinity of human desires. Food scarcity and lack of clothing is a real and live issue in our community. Many families struggle to get enough of what they need right next door to us. But even for those who don't face food scarcity or clothing scarcity of any kind, anxiousness over having enough can still be an issue. A sense of not having enough of one particular thing or not having enough of something that we just don't have and that we want. That can also create that same anxiousness within us. And we all desire to be safe. We fear what could harm us. The last two years of living through a pandemic have revealed just how true that is. In a variety of ways, seeking to keep oneself safe and or comfortable have sometimes gone from a healthy concern that we ought to have to an unhealthy ambition that ends up controlling and dictating our lives and consuming us. Notice that nowhere in this sermon does Jesus teach us that the body isn't important or that food and drink don't matter. Neglecting our bodies and our lives is also incompatible with his kingdom. Care for our bodies and each other is true and good and right for his kingdom. So what is the point then? What is Jesus driving at here? I think we can most clearly see his point by looking at the way he summarizes his teaching at the end. We'll have it up here on the slide. I'm going to reread Matthew 6, 31 to 33. This is Jesus' summary of what he was saying. He says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So first he summarizes what he's been saying. Don't be anxious about what you eat, drink, or wear. Then he adds, though, that the Gentiles seek after all these things. Gentiles were just non-Jewish people. For the people who were hearing Jesus teach this, they would have been people who have something other than God as their reference point. They would have been seen as outside of God's family of faith. The key word I want us to notice is the word seek. You see that there? Jesus replaces the word anxious that he had been using throughout this teaching with the word seek. He could have just as easily said the Gentiles are anxious about these things, but he didn't. He said seek. 
The word seek helps us to see that the sense of anxious that Jesus is using throughout this sermon is about our heart's pursuits and desires and ambitions. Jesus is getting at what do we really want? What is going to be our aim? What are we going to pursue and seek? That's the sense of the word anxious throughout this sermon. It's getting at over-concern and a preoccupation with material well-being. A focus and pursuit of material security that can become a primary source of worry because it has become a primary source of focus and ambition. Like the way that Jesus taught the inevitability of having a master, God or money, he's teaching about the inevitability of having something that we seek in our lives. Something that we are driving towards with our energies and our focus and our actions. That ambition, whatever that is, is what ends up being our preoccupation and it's where our New Year's resolutions come from. Instead of seeking material security, Jesus calls his disciples to something much greater, much more permanent, his kingdom and his righteousness. More on that higher pursuit in one minute. But first, I want to look at the reasons that Jesus gives us why being anxious about these things is incompatible with life in his kingdom that he wants for us. He invites us to learn from the birds and from the lilies. I just love that so much. We are blessed to live in a place, a place of geography where we can very easily position ourselves to look at birds and to look at flowers, at least some times of the year, right? Not right now so much. To observe what Jesus is calling us to observe in his creation, we need to slow down, church. We need to look at what he's saying to look at, and we need to really consider what he's saying to consider. Jesus says, look at the birds. Consider the lilies. It's hard to imagine doing what he's describing here in a frazzled, hurried way. I don't think we'll get what he's saying if we do it that way. He's inviting us to slow down and to observe what is going on around us, to get outside of ourselves and to look. I think he's painting a picture of a contemplative life, a life that isn't constantly running from one thing to the other, but is intentionally lived in the place and the moment that God has put us in. He wants us to see that the birds and the lilies have needs too, just like us. But it isn't the birds and the lilies that take care of themselves. It's God. God is the one that takes care of them. And if God takes care of them, Jesus' argument is, how much more would he take care of us who are of more value than the birds and the lilies? Notice too that as Jesus makes this point, he clarifies for his disciples who God is to them. He's their heavenly father. I think sometimes in church we can get so used to phrases like that, like heavenly father, that we can miss the impact of what it would have sounded like to hear it from Jesus for the first time. He says, your heavenly father feeds them and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. 
We need not be anxious because God is our Heavenly Father who is intimately aware of every need we have before we know we need what we need. He knows what we need and He loves to provide. We are not left on our own like sheep without a shepherd. We have a loving Father who takes care of us because He has chosen to make our care His priority. So in addition to looking at and gazing at the birds and the lilies, Jesus tells us and makes an argument that the actual act of worry is totally ineffective to bring about the thing that we want. In short, it doesn't accomplish anything good. Jesus said, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? The implied answer is no one, and it seems more likely to me that living that sort of life will probably shorten your life rather than add to it. Anxiously pursuing on our own what our Heavenly Father has made it His priority to provide is a waste of energy and it accomplishes nothing good. And the things that we tend to be anxious about and worry about are always coming, right? They're, they're in the future. What if this happens tomorrow? Or what if I run out of this soon? When we choose to set our minds on these potential negative future outcomes, we end up living in a fantasy world, a world that isn't real because it hasn't happened yet. When we do that, we find that we are all alone in that world that we made because God and our life happen in the real world, not the world that we imagine might be. Jesus teaches us that the way of being constantly sorting through anxious what-ifs isn't what he intends for his apprentices. Instead, he calls us to something that is truly life-giving for us and for other people, something that is solid and of real worth. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, while at the same time promising that as we do that, as we make the kingdom of God and his righteousness our pursuit, all the other things that we want and can worry about will be provided for us by him. He won't leave anything out. Here he again presents us with a choice. What will be our primary aim? What will be our ambition? Will we make it our ambition to go after what Jesus says the world goes after, the Gentiles, the word he uses? Or will we make it our ambition to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. It's like the choice Jesus gave between God and money. It's impossible to seek both things at the same time. We can get an insight into what this looks like by thinking about the prayer that he gave us earlier in this chapter. He taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. When we pray that prayer, we're entering into what Jesus is saying we should seek first, God's kingdom and his active reign. Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors, says that God's kingdom is the place where what God wants done is done. The place where what God wants done is done. So when we pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as in heaven, we're praying that God's reign would fill the earth and permeate every aspect of it just like it does right now in heaven. There isn't a corner of heaven where we could imagine 
where his reign isn't complete and full, where what God wants done isn't done. But our world is in the midst of renewal and being redeemed, still broken. There are lots of places in our own hearts and in our lives and in the world around us where what God wants done isn't done, right? Jesus' arrival at Christmas is an important part of how God's kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as in heaven. For us to seek God's kingdom then as our first ambition, as our first aim, is to seek God's reign in us and everywhere around us. To seek God's kingdom in our thinking and in our desiring and in our living. And then all the spheres of influence that he has given to each one of us in the room. By the Holy Spirit, we observe where God is active, where we see him reigning uniquely, and then we join him in what he is doing in the world. God has placed each one of us here strategically where he has placed us, in the exact places that he wants us to be to make this our aim. Each one of us has unique neighbors and unique friends and unique workplaces that are only ours, that no one else in the room has. And that is all by God's design so that we can join him in his work of redemption that he is doing all around us. God is drawing people to himself right now around us that they would know him that they would experience the healing and freedom and forgiveness that we have experienced in Christ. So a very important part of the way that we seek first the kingdom is by joining God in what he's doing as he redeems people through our witness, through our words of the life of Christ, and through our life, his life and his rule flowing through us out into the world. He also says to pursue his righteousness. And his righteousness is just the way of life in the kingdom, one in which love for God and love for neighbor is the top priority. His care is a fact of life in the kingdom, one in which we live in peace, rooted in moments of contemplation and conviction of our Father's care and always provision for us. We're meant to be visible and tangible reminders of his reign. Our lives alert people to a living God who's active and reigning. That is why this is so important for us. And that's why it's so important for the world around us. I want to shift gears here now and just think for a couple minutes, really practically. If you're sitting there thinking, how would I make this holy ambition to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness first a reality in my life in a new way this year? How would I do that? I came up with a couple ideas. So you may be thinking, One of the things in this new year that you need more of is prayer, a life of prayer and connection with God, one where you really know and experience Jesus as you do your work every day, as you do the things that God called you into. If that's what you're thinking you need, I would say that first and most basically, we need moments of focused attention on him to make that a reality. If we want to think of him and be aware of him as we go about life, We need to first start with, in dependence on God's Spirit, a daily set-aside time for prayer and connection with Him. There's just no way around that. If we want to experience Him in our daily life, we have to set aside at least a few moments each day where we just focus on Him and connect with Him. Maybe as you're thinking about the new year, you're thinking, 
I want a life that is full of more loving action. I want to be able to really be serving the people in my life around me. Well, if we want this life where it's normal and it's a regular rhythm of our lives to be lovingly serving, then we need to take practical steps. Again, independence on God's Spirit to specifically and intentionally love other people. And these steps, I think, are going to be really small. Just simple ways of loving and showing concern for other people and serving them with our life. Those steps might seem small, but I think they can develop into a habit that becomes just a normal part of our life, just seeking outwardly how we can love and serve those around us. The point is we just have to start somewhere that goes beyond thinking and intention. I know for me, I often really think about and intend to do these things and don't get to the point of the action. So just start with a small thing. Maybe as I was talking about a life of hurry, you thought to yourself, I, I need to slow down. My life is too frazzled. It's too hurried. If I'm going to be able to look at the birds and the lilies and observe what's going on around me, I need to slow down. If that's where you are, I would encourage you to ruthlessly eliminate hurry. There's even a book by that, that title, Ruthlessly Eliminate Hurry, that I would recommend you get and check out and take simple steps to start slowing life down. I know for sure that life will not slow down on its own. The pace seems to just accelerate. And the point of slowing down isn't to have a schedule that's just open. For most of us, a schedule without anything on it isn't real. That can't happen. A life that is unhurried is a lot more about a heart posture in the midst of a full day that isn't constantly running from one thing to the next, but is actually enjoying God's presence in the moment. But it will take some really, some thinking and some work. And I would encourage you, if that's where you are this morning, to talk with someone who you know well to help you figure that out. What would it look like to start slowing down a bit? To create some space to focus our minds on God and his kingdom. A good friend and pastor of mine back in Canada suggested three daily priorities that have proven really helpful for me. They're up on the screen. If you stop in my office, you'll see these are written on my whiteboard in there, and they have been written there for almost two years. I have found these three priorities daily to be super helpful as I try to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. The first one is just to be attentive to God every morning. I love the word attentive because where our attention is focused, that is where our mind will go. So attentive to God in prayer, attentive to him in getting in his word. Again, this can be a short amount of time, but just a moment of being attentive. And the second one is making it a priority to keep dealing with my own stuff. That's just all the stuff in me that I know is not God's kingdom and will being done in me as it is in heaven. So all of the things that he's working on in me to grow me in Christ-likeness, making that a priority this year something that's been helpful for me. And the third one is really important. Let my walk exceed my talk. This is all about not merely appearing, but truly being. Letting our life outpace what we can talk about and asking God to help us do that. I'd commend these three priorities to you 
And I'm sure there in this room are lists of other ones that people have that have been helpful that I love to hear. You could share them with me after the service. But I would commend these three to you. The start of a new year for an apprentice of Jesus must be rooted in an ever-increasing awareness of the very real presence of God's kingdom among us and within us. Rooted in the reality that Jesus the King has come, his reign is real and solid, and so is his care and provision for us. This life, this kingdom life, is carried out in unhurried rhythms that seek first his kingdom and his righteousness in all areas of our life that reflects a conviction of his loving presence with us. Let's be at prayer together, church, for this more and more this year in each one of us and in the world around us. Let's continue to anticipate Christ together the way we have been through Advent and this Christmas season. I'm excited to see what he's going to be doing in this new year in each one of us and in our community around us. I know he has strategically positioned us to do these very things. Communion. This is a visible word that nourishes our soul similar to how the written word does. We feed on the truth of Jesus' death on the cross for us as we experience the taste of the bread and the cup. We come to him in communion as his redeemed ones, purchased with his body and blood. In the Lord's Supper, we remember and we celebrate and we anticipate Christ's work in us, his victory over death and darkness, and his someday return to set all things right. If you have responded to God's love with faith in Christ, then we invite you to take this bread and this cup with us. If you're here this morning visiting and observing and learning, we want you to know that we are really glad that you're here. And we want to invite you to continue to observe and be with us as we participate in this really uniquely and peculiar Christian way of worshiping God. We'll start with the bread this morning. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel of Jesus for purchasing us, for cleansing us and renewing us in him through his death, for giving us new life through his resurrection, and for filling us with his spirit as he reigns in this world. Lord, the things that Jesus talked about in this sermon that we read today are impossible apart from your work in us by your spirit. So Father, I ask that the desires that rise up in us for your kingdom, that you would bring to fruition, that you would bring 
your power to bear upon these holy ambitions that you give us. Lord, our heart's desire is to worship and seek you in all areas of our life and to see those of us and those around us that we love know Jesus the way we do. We pray that you would do that this year, Lord, in a unique and powerful way among us. We love you, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.